This week on the Eldritch Lawcast. Layers of Atheros is now available on D&D Beyond. It's really exciting. Well, look at that. Wait, 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 wait. How to describe the look of your world, especially when your players aren't familiar with fantasy touchstones. Sean, you said you, you have to use a light touch with sensory description. How would you try to quantify the lightness of that touch? Why no dragons in Grim Hollow? This is a good question, Benjamin. Barry left this question on Spotify because you can leave comments <gasps> on Spotify. Yes, Barry. All that and more right now. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG and 5e podcast and other things podcast, VTT podcast in all the realms. Uh, I'm extremely excited for this week. We have pre-recorded it, so save your questions no, until no. next it's week. It's a different week, a different day. <laughs> uh, that was Dale Kingsmill uh, <laughs> jumping in ahead of myself, Ben Byrne, James Hake, Sean Merwin. James, I've got a question for, you know what, actually, Dale, see? <laughs> you're you're eager. You're you eager started to go. with me last week, so yeah. Let's... And yeah. <laughs> and people need to appreciate this hat. Um, uh, if you, uh, what what is? Sorry, I'm distracted by the hat. What is one of your favorite monster lairs specifically that you have featured in one of your games? Maybe you oh. pulled it from a book or designed it yourself. But talking about the lair itself. Ooh. Um, I ran a Christmas one-shot. This is a good question, Benjamin. Um, Thank you. Uh, I ran a Christmas one-shot for my friends at some point that was inspired by Tolkien's Father Christmas Letters uh, and mm-hmm. the goblins therein. Um, and I just made this whole kind of cave, this ice cave system uh, full of full of sort of hive-style goblins who had um, scrawled all across all of the walls, naughty, nice, naughty, 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 nice, naughty. Um, and just kind of made it a little bit creepy. That was a lot of fun. I did a lot of playing with um, sort of uh, dark vision can't see in color and they'd written stuff in red. So when they did right. cast a, a fireball or whatever, it lit up the walls and you could see the messaging. That was really fun. That's maybe a, that's, that, that might be up there. In Critical Role Call of the Netherdeep, the final dungeon of that story is the Netherdeep. And it's kind of the, the twisted... Uh, semi-real, semi-psychological lair of the godling that is imprisoned within it. And so uh, all of the rooms within it are kind of twisted by visions of uh, regret and sorrow and the and the struggles that this being went through in life. And so there's a very sort of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, there, there's a sort of dreamlike unreality to it that I really oh. enjoy rooms, rooms that have, you know, where, where metaphor is made literal, like where, you know, this demigod was once a, a person who kind of gave all they had to give all he had to give to the people and asking nothing in return. And so part of his damage is that, you know, uh, he, he has come to resent that and you can kind of show him how to, how to believe in his old faith again. And so there are rooms in where there, you know, thousands of hands are growing from the walls and kind of grasping at your, at your cloak and at your boots, trying to like drag you into the things they need, the things that you can give to them. Yeah. That reminds me because whenever I ask these questions, often I can't think like if I get asked a, a question, I'll have a great answer that I just can't think of. And that reminds me of one of my favorite lairs that I, I was scratching my brain. I was like, I love lairs. Surely I've done a really great lair. And it was a citadel called the Citadel. It was that was very creative. But basically a mage had been slain there in some magical confluence that had caused uh, everybody to leave and it to become an abandoned tower. But the mage's consciousness was kind of infused into the tower. He mm. wasn't a ghost. He, I actually used an elder, elder brain stat block for him at the end. Um, so he had kind of become the tower. And so exploring it was like wandering through their memories and putting clues together and you because he'd been there for you know thousand years you kind of learned the deep history of the the realm uh, while exploring uh this this citadel through his memories um and then at the same time there were mind flayers invading it um so they kind of had their own impacts on like changing things and um him trying to shift the players around to different rooms to keep them safe from the mind flayers it was a great time a good cool. dungeon. Sean Merwin, you've designed plenty of dungeons, uh, plenty of lairs, I should say, some of them for lairs of Etherus. Um, but what is a, it doesn't have to be from that book, but what is a favorite lair that you've uh, used in game or design? 
I'm going to go in two different directions, if you, okay. if you permit. I'm going to talk first about one of the first books that Wizards of the Coast published for fourth edition was called Dungeon Delve. And it was a book of 30 layers, one for each level, since fourth edition went from level one to 30. And they tapped a few organized playwriters to create these delves, these layers. And so I got to, I think I worked on six of them, maybe. A, a bunch of us uh, worked on like four to six each. But I got to do the first level one, which was quite the honor. And I did Copper Knight Hold, which was a dwarven hold that was supposed to be delivering goods to town, but they didn't make their delivery. So the adventurers yeah. trundle off at first level to find out what happens. And it's a typical kobolds have invaded. They've taken over with the help of a dragon, a, a baby dragon, but a dragon. And so it was the first time that a lot of players were using these rules. So I tried to make it fun with lots of traps because they're cobalt. So you're going to have lots of traps, but then there's that big surprise of you fought your way through a few rooms with cobalt. You come around the corner and there's a, a dragon that's getting ready to breathe on you, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was cool and, and it, it got used a lot, but someone sent me a link once and said, check this out. And I had no idea what it was. I clicked on it. It wasn't a URL I recognized. Ooh, it, was Will, it was Will Ooh, Danger, danger. <laughs> it, was Will, it was Will Wheaton's blog. And he was writing about running D&D for the first time for his children. And he, that's the adventure he was running for them. And it was the first time where I'd done a lot of organized playwriting, so I knew people were playing my stuff. But this was the first time I was like, Ooh, yeah. People there are, are playing people your stuff. Playing this stuff. I, and the most challenging recently was from Layers of Atheris because I wrote the last five, which covers levels mm. 16 to 20. And mm. trying to create anything at that level is hard. Uh, trying to create a layer at that level is even harder because for high level things, you design a certain way. Maybe at some point we'll talk about high-level game design and making adventures fun <laughs> at high level. But uh, it, it made it harder to do a short thing and a contained thing at that level. But I hope that uh, along with Tom Donovan, who wrote uh, the first 10 layers, and Greg Marks, who wrote the next five layers, that we put together a book of layers that are both fun to play in, in their own right, but also emblematic of Etheris. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been reading through it a lot recently for reasons that are about to become obvious, and I think it's really great. You know, the the monsters in there, the lairs in there uh, are really fantastic. And speaking of lairs of Etheris, it's going to be easier than ever for folks to be able to play through those lairs if they want, because lairs of Etheris is now available at time that you're hearing this on D&D Beyond. Um, it has just landed as of last week, just before PAX Unplugged. Um, and you can go get it right now for $14.99 US and play through all of those layers. There's 20 layers from levels 1 all the way to 20. There's over 75 Grim Hollow stat blocks, which are now fully integrated into D&D Beyond. There are two feats for the crafting system that you can add to your character sheet. There are new magic items and new spells uh, that you can grab from Layers of Etherus. Once we started porting it in, we were like, Oh, there's actually quite a lot of like ancillary stuff here outside of like the adventure itself. But I cannot express how much I've been sitting on this news and trying not it's to tell really it. And exciting. <laughs> it's extremely exciting. Anyway, yeah. Now I'm just, I'm just uh, I feel like a, a, a rush of energy just kind of draining me at the moment as I finally am able to talk about this in this very secretly pre-recorded episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. <laughs> this is so cool. So so are all of these layers, they're not just on D&D Beyond, but they're, are, are they on the, the maps thing too? I, I legitimately don't know. I'm learning about this right now. Yeah, no, I deliberately kept this a secret to get Dale and, and James's uh, legitimate reaction to this. I put, the, I, I, I put this in our so run sheet. So it is on as, maps? It is on maps. Yes, yes! it is. Absolutely. Mm. Um, it looks fantastic yes. on maps. and. And not only have they imported the monster art from Lairs of Etheris as tokens to go onto maps when you pull in those monsters, but they've also incorporated some of our character art as well to like for your that you can add to your character sheet. I assume That's to be able so to add it. Sick. Well, look at that! Um, you can also pull in other monsters from D and D Beyond because there are basic rules monsters in some of these layers as well um, that you can pull in and add them. 
uh, when you need those tokens. And uh, you can pull in those monsters into any kind of, you know, uh, uh, function that you, if you're running not in Lairs, if you're running your own game, your homebrew or in another adventure, um, you can port in those monsters by checking the the Grim Hollow content uh, box. And these so, are monster grimoire monsters. These are monster grimoire, over 75 monsters from the monster grimoire, um, uh, including the Fazeg, including the Angel of Imperius, including the Malakirian Imp, including the Shattercore. Get your Grim Fantasy! Get uh, your Grim Fantasy! The Harvester here. of Lies, <laughs> the uh, Bone Trader, um, <laughs> you know, some, the, and That's the salvage so mechanics. Great. The salvage mechanics have gone in there oh, as well. Wait, so, yeah. wait, 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 Every Grim Hollow monster comes with salvage. That might be like, all right, I'm going to build, um, I'm going to, I mean, long-time Lorecast listeners might know some of this already, but I'm talking about it in reference to D&D Beyond. So I might, you know, build a plate mail from the hide of an Empyrean brazen bull, which is like this golden celestial bull, and it's plate mail that gives you uh, fire and radiance resistance as well as like plus one plate mail. Um, or I might make uh, oil of sharpness from the candle wax of a candlelight demon and rub that on my blade. I'm sorry, yes. Sean, I'm taking all the talking points here because you actually <laughs> wrote this, but um, uh, I'm just so excited. I can't shut up. I, I know nothing more about this, but I have to say when inevitably the monster grimoire shows up on D&D Beyond, very good. They've done some of the work already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, like I'm fingers crossed that happens. Because even having a fraction of it is so cool. I don't know if this is even like a thing or if it's uh, possible or if it's something that Grim Hollow wants to do or if it's something that, you know, I don't, I don't know nothing about this, but I'm now daydreaming about the day I don't have to like force <laughs> one of the, the Grim Hollow classes or subclasses into mm. D&D Beyond's homebrew thing. That would be incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. there, there, there's going to be a lot of sort of ancillary questions. Let uh, me play a bright that, monkey. Uh, <laughs> just put mm-hmm. it in there. Yeah, that's all stuff we would love to do. No announcement outside of Lairs except that, uh, separate to Grim Hollow, Dungeons of Drakenheim is also oh, now pre-orderable nice. uh, at time of recording for D&D Beyond. So that's releasing, I think, a little bit later in December but you can go to D&D Beyond at time of listening to this and pre-order Dungeons of Drakenheim from the Dungeon Dudes as well, um, published by Ghostfire Gaming. Um, so, nice. uh, written by, the, nice. by uh, Monty and Kelly. Oh. Um, so, Well, grats, Ghostfire Gaming. Yeah. That's very exciting. Hell yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Sean, do you have anything? <laughs> Did I just word vomit the whole thing out? Do you? Uh, I mean, this is your product, really. You were in charge of Lairs of Etheris and the Monster Grimoire. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting. I didn't even know all the details. Uh, I knew something was going on, but you know, other than ask answering a few questions about, hey, in layers, this says this. Is this right? You know that sort of thing. <laughs> um, I I wasn't aware of everything that was happening, so I am so excited oh. to. It's always exciting to get your work in front of more people, and. Being on D and D Beyond is very exciting, so I can sit here and state some obvious things like I just did. But <laughs> I hope people just enjoy the heck out of the things that we create. Uh, so, you know, thank you to Ghostfire for publishing all of this great stuff. Thank you to uh, to D and D Beyond for being the host of it, and uh, hopefully, mm. more will come, not just from us, but you know, from everybody in the community who works so yeah. hard. Uh, at this hobby. Also, bad props to the team who will have done all of the uh, the translating, the mm. the uh, whatever the actual word is for taking the, a book the thing, ingesting, <laughs> and making it be a D and D Beyond thing because that's mm-hmm. not a small amount of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no the 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 team at D and D Beyond have been really fun to work with and really great, and and a lot of them every time we talk to them are legitimate fans of either Grim Hollow or Dungeons of Drakenheim or both. Um, and so it's been fun, you know, talking with them and they'll ask a question, you know, whether it's about, uh, something technical or whether it's about, you know, theme or aesthetic, or, you know, we, we had a hand in, in how this is going to be marketed around, uh, PAX Unplugged as well, or just beforehand, um, and just answering those questions and having them go, Ooh, Ooh, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, my favorite is talking about the Shatter Corpse, which is like a zombie that has glass kind of like 
growing out of it because it died by getting thrown through a window or something oh, like that. It's kind of like a, a Bloody Mary. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and it just feels like it, it's, it's a great encapsulation of the horror themes that uh, uh, and, and the kind of body horror that Grim Hollow can tap into um, uh, for people who want to try those more horror-themed monsters. Yeah, and I can't wait to tell the 40-plus people who worked on the, the Grimoire. The layers mm. are, you know, three of us, but you know, the Grimoire, there were 40-plus people who contributed uh, monsters and ideas and development, and including some of my first students uh, got to submit some monsters. So uh, I can't wait to see which monsters. I have an idea of which monsters are going up based on the layers, but... Um, you know, they're going to be tickled pink. By the way, you now have something up on the Beyond. Congratulations. This just makes me so happy, dude. Sean, if you point directly upwards, there'll be a link right there straight right to there. D&D Beyond. Uh, if you want to grab Layers of Etheris, it's available right now. Um, there'll be a link down in the description as well. Um, there, I'll probably throw a pre-order link to Dungeons of Drakenheim. Uh, go check out the Dungeon Dudes channel. They'll be talking about it uh, over there, how excited they are for it. Um, I, I, you know, we're extremely excited as well. I don't want to speak on their behalf. That really is their baby, uh, Dungeons of Dragon Eye. But it, it's, I've gone on record on this podcast before saying that is an amazing adventure that I definitely want to run one day. Um, mm-hmm. so if you want to have your player characters, you know, port straight into Dungeons of Drakenheim or Lairs of Etheris, uh, there it is. It's a great gateway into Grim Hollow, um, more broadly speaking, for people who want to try more of the dark fantasy moral complexity uh, of the setting uh if you want to make your players cry like i do um check out grim hollow <laughs> or laugh <laughs> or laugh or, or laugh, or laugh. You know, yeah they laugh they definitely laugh at my expense more often than not um no i'm just kidding um uh, go check it out blah blah, blah blah i don't know if there's much more to say about it um blah 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 blah, 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 blah. Uh, because we're recording this in advance, if stuff happened at uh, PAX Unplugged, I'm not going to know about it. So hopefully <laughs> not too much. That'll have to wait till next week. Um, sorry, I paused because Dale looked like you wanted to say something. but uh, And then I thought better of it because it was just a stupid comment. It was just, it was just one of my patented stupid remarks. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you have to share with the rest of it the class. It wasn't even good, Ben. I was just going to say, so no one do anything at PAX Unplugged. No one go. Everyone stay home. <laughs> well, that's definitely not the plan. I try to keep the news to a minimum, I suppose. Um, otherwise, it'll have to wait till next week, as is typical. No Magic the Gathering heists, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that never happens. I mean, to be fair, the, the Lairs news, the, the D&D Beyond news will be old hat by the time... Um, people hear this so um yeah i just uh, would take the moment to uh, expunge our excitement is that the right expunge. word expunge expunge expound ex- uh, no i'm gonna stop trying dale i'm <laughs> gonna continue um expound i don't know anyway <laughs> speaking of expounding things expunging things uh Shuett has a question uh james where sh- where would Shuett have emailed their question He would have emailed us at, oh no, oh no, I forgot it. it what is it at ghostfiregaming.com? Podcast at ghostfiregaming.com? It is indeed, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. I don't blame you. Dante, ignore that. <laughs> James, where sh- where would Shuett have emailed their question? Well, of course he would have emailed us at podcast <laughs> at ghostfiregaming.com. Whoa, of got course. it in one. Got it in one. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and their question was asking about how to describe the look of your world, especially when your players aren't familiar with fantasy touchstones. Um, and my little kind of edit onto that, because I this is a genuine question I have, is how long do you spend describing your world or describing scenes? Uh, Shuert was saying, I believe, if I'm remembering their email correctly, that their friends don't have a lot of touchstones like Game of Thrones or The Witcher or Skyrim that they're more engaged with. And so he can't just be like, you know, that castle in Game of Thrones? Because they'll be like, no. Uh, how do you go about descriptions if, if you don't have those kind of things to rely on? The place I always go to for inspiration is nature. Um, I'm very fortunate to live in a very beautiful part of the country uh, up here in the Pacific Northwest where I can just kind of go out on hikes in the mountains and the forests and by rivers and against the ocean and have that be very normal. Um, and so whenever I think of things like that, uh, things described in a fantasy world, I, I go out and I try and find something that's roughly equivalent in the real world or even just, you know, go on, go on 
Google Images or something like that uh, and look at photos of national parks or European uh, historic monuments or things like that and be like, okay, well, what would I do? How could I break this down into real sensory detail? Because sensory detail is the way to go with it. Sight is Mm -hmm. fine. Being able to say that, and there is one tower that looms high into the sky, right? There's one thing that you can grab onto geometrically almost. That's good. But, you know, if you can describe the, uh, the taste of the air or the scent of the soil or the, the roughness of a tree's bark, the stickiness of its sap, I mean, that, that will lodge an image in your players' heads. I can't add too much to that because the internet is such a, a useful tool that you know, I am not a visually oriented person. So when I'm writing something, I do exactly what James said. It's go, th- go for the senses. Just a touch. If you overdo it, you're going to lose people a lot. So just lightly layer in what does something look like, smell like, feel like. Uh, But books that you will buy from Wizards of the Coast and Ghost Fire Gaming and any other publisher spend reams and reams of money on artists doing art. So just go to those books and flip through them. You don't even have to read the words. You can just, oh, this forest here, this is what my world is close enough to to look like, or this building, or these people, or whomever, or whatever you're trying to uh, describe. Uh, it's They might not be uh, familiar with fantasy, but you are probably. If you are running a Witcher game, you probably have access to Witcher books, Witcher art, Witcher magazines, Witcher whatever, uh, the TV show. You will be able to find things online to hold up in front of your players which I do constantly when I'm running. I'm running um, Unseen Sun right now, and I'm constantly mm-hmm. holding the book up uh, or the screen up to show people what uh, what everything looks like that I'm describing. Yeah. Sean, you said you can you you have to use a light touch with sensory description. What? How how would you try to quantify the lightness of that touch, the subtlety of it? What is the most important thing that someone should know? Mm. What what word? Uh, words have meanings. Words are important. So if I sure. want someone to know that this person is uh, rough and uh, physical, and I'm going to find the word that means that, and I'm going to make sure that that word not only describes that person, but it puts the players in a frame of mind where they know what they are supposed to be getting with interactions with that person uh, as sort of a clue. So all my box text, I try to make almost poetry, not in the sense of that it is poetic, but poetry in the sense that every word should have a use Mm -hmm. and not just one use. It should have multiple uses. Uh, If I'm describing a statue, I am describing not necessarily how big it is or what it's made of, uh, if that's not important. But what I'm going to describe are the fiery gems in its eyes. A, because that's where the trap is. B, because that's where the treasure <laughs> is. So I'm, I'm making sure that I point that out. So I can just say the large statue. If, if, um, if it's important that it's granite, I will put that below the box text for the dungeon master. But in the read aloud text, only put in the words that are going to be triggering something in the player and hopefully more than one thing in the player. Mm. Because it's, it's all the associations that come with a given synonym as well, right? Like the, the English language, certainly I'm sure every other language, I just don't speak any of them um, have all, all manner of words that mean the same thing, but they evoke different feelings. You know, it, it's the difference between stomach and tummy or, or feelings or emotion. You know, it's, they, they are the same thing they make you feel a different way. And you can really hack into that as a tool for hacking into your players' reactions to th- certain things. You can, mm-hmm. you can make, Ben and I are so snappy today. We're like, yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes. Um, <laughs> but um, I, similar, I mean, Sean mentioned box text. I can't trust myself with descriptions at all. I tend to do things in the wrong direction where I will like describe a lot in a situation that doesn't matter, like travel, but I will forget to describe a room that they're about to do combat in or that they're about to investigate. So I often write boxed text for myself 
which I find is good because I can also control how long I'm going to be talking for and try to not lose my players. Um, but also the art, talking about art, it's so helpful, particularly for players. If, if your uh, you know, go-to description uh, visually for something is, oh, you know, in Lord of the Rings when, and your players can't connect with that. Those are things that we often are associating with a visual thing as well, right? Like you're probably associating with the visuals of the films of Lord of the Rings more than you are the text from the books because otherwise you could just read the text from the books and they would be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, trees. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, so so we've, we've got that real like implanted image in our brains and you can just show them that image and it makes a world of difference to the point where for, for such a long time I have wished just, just so often that there was a product. You know how we get um, – books that you can buy that are just full of battle maps that you can put down on the table and use. I I have players who um, are slightly more geared towards uh, theater of the mind than they are to, to battle maps. They kind of check out as soon as there's a tactical map in front of them. And so I keep wishing that there there was a book of just kind of like the concept art for video games where you can tell it's been designed by someone who is thinking about it as terrain to play on, where they're like, ah, yes, and there are these levels, and to get to these levels, you have these two parts, you know, that sort of thinking. But that kind of evocative imagery that you could just hold up to your player and say, this is where we are, and now we enter combat. I would love for something like that. So people out there. I used to to pull that in when I was playing online, especially, and, like, sharing screen and, and whatnot. I would always have my share screen up, even if we weren't in combat, and if it wasn't showing a map or something, what it would show is usually like a mood piece of art that I got probably off Pinterest or something that was meant to be a visual representation of the place where they are to set that mood. If it's a rainforest, I'd find like, you know, an image where the camera's tilted upwards towards the mist that kind of hangs among the tree branches. Or if it was a city town, I'd find some concept art of, of a village um, and where, where people were walking around. Um, I was very specific because if there were, you know, species within that village that in that piece of art that didn't belong in the world, I wouldn't use that one. I'd use a different one. So you can get specific about it. But creating Pinterest mood boards are, are a really great way um, to to ingest, I suppose, more more inspiration for for descriptions and things like that. Um, uh, uh, reading. Uh, speaking of the dungeon dudes, I remember on one of our like very first episodes, Kelly McLaughlin talked about. How re- just just growing your vocabulary through reading can really mm-hmm. help with uh, descriptions, um, and I also write down uh, descriptions for rooms before the the players go in there. I usually try to do mine in dot points so that I can go off book uh, and and in, and look at the players and not feel like I'm kind of reading from a from a box. So I don't like box text is because if I look away, I can't find my place again. Whether as if it's in dot this points, I can... exactly the conversation I, I had every time there was a presentation at uni and people would be like, do it in dot points so you can just, you know, drop in and out of what you've got written. But I just... Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, everybody's going to That's how I do everything. I write it out in full and then I go off script anyway. But the dot points are helpful. To go back to an earlier point uh, about reference art, um, to hype up another VTT, Alchemy Tabletop, like, specifically does that. When you haven't got a battle map prepared, they like link, I don't know, like an establishing shot with all of their battle maps uh, that oh. are published through. That's a great you, word for it. Establishing shot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When we talk about cinematic RPGs, that's the sort of presentational elements we're talking about. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's especially ones that are done by uh, by Che Peku, the the yeah, map yeah. makers. So they kind of pair when they do stuff for alchemy they pair an establishing shot illustration with an associated battle map. There's an interesting site called the scribe. When I first joined Ghostfire, I was approached by the person who started this to ask if I would write for them. And what they do is they write scenes that you can then use to read. If you're entering the frosty forest, you can just grab this bit of text and, and read it. And I thought this was a really interesting, uh, because we get a lot of art, but we don't get a lot of, of this sort of text. Mm. And they've expanded to to do like spells. What does a spell look like when you cast it? Well, here's here's a description. Nice. But they also do sounds. They do and it's they do have some for free, but it's like a subscription database sort of service. And it's D S C R Y B describe. 
if you check it out online, I don't know much because about it. Because it's for it fantasy. Than, <laughs> yes. Uh, so if, if you're interested in something like that, that's always there to check out too. I know they do maps as well, I think. Uh, yeah, no, that sounds cool. I mean, spells is something that I love giving evocative descriptions to. Mm-hmm. Um, I never cast a spell by just saying, I cast fireball. Everybody has to wait. Well, I spend 10 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I do get kind of, uh, that. that's where I get brain stuck a little bit is on describing spells for some reason. Hopefully that answers the question. Speaking of questions, Barry also sent a question to podcastatghostfiregaming.com asking, uh, actually, no, Barry did not. Barry left this question on Spotify because you can leave comments <gasps> on Spotify. Yes, Barry. Um, so Barry asking the question, uh, how do you keep a group playing together after folk move to different cities or places? Uh, and then my slight editorializing on this being how to keep a campaign regular, especially when folks' lives are changing. My group, uh, you know, we, we haven't moved to different cities. We're still in the same city, though we have moved to kind of different corners of that city. Uh, one of us has had, uh, you know, so some of us are having children. Some of us are really busy with our jobs where we're flying more you know like different things like that are happening um uh, uh so how do you maintain a campaign through life's changes if you've been able to, to maintain it so far i would say the the biggest thing for me so i i do have players who decided to all disappear to the different four corners of the earth uh and <laughs> the biggest lesson that i learned amongst that is if you want to keep playing with that group uh you're going to have to either commit to only doing it in person when they visit or commit to changing to playing online. Because I did try for a little while, oh, okay, the people who are still living here, let's continue meeting in person because I prefer playing in person. Uh, and the the other players who'd moved away called in and I think they just had a miserable time because they can't, you know, there are going to be tech technical issues. They can't see the map. They don't know what's going on. They can't hear you properly. And eventually it's just going to be them sitting there for a few hours while you play D&D far away from them. Um, So I would say commit to one or the other, because as as much as we can all believe in the dream of mixed media (laughs) D&D, it's not that simple. (laughs) I I find it's getting better. I would have agreed with you, particularly during COVID, um, uh, not to evoke that specter, but I, I really struggled with the mixed meeting until I kind of got um, better and better with, with the tools used for mixed meetings, um, I, I once did a game where I had the, the, the people I was playing with had like, you know, podcast quality microphones and they had camera pointed at the table. Obviously, not everybody's going to have this tech, but it's just a funny story. And then I had the, gu- the one guy who was not there was projected on a TV screen that was behind me like the emperor. Um, and <laughs> so when I'm... When I'm talking, I would turn around and look at him, but he's like, you're not looking at me. I can't see. And I was like, oh, right. The camera's in front of me. Um, uh, I, I agree. I think for long-term campaigns, uh, and I, partic- I don't enjoy playing when everybody else is together and I'm isolated. I tend to like disengage and tune out. So for long-form campaigns, I agree. But generally what I do is I have a spare, one of these that I own, uh, a podcast microphone. I set that up near the GM. It's usually good enough that I can pick everyone up. And then I get a Zoom call happening on two separate laptops. So that one is close to the GM so that I can interface with them directly. Okay, and one so is the real the answer group. is commit to whatever mm-hmm. you're committing to. Well, look, I mean, this if is- If you ju- have yeah. the, the commitment and the equipment necessary to commit to mixed media, then go for it. Yeah, I, well, I guess it's just, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but I don't want to yeah, make people and, feel and like right, they can And you're right, the tech is getting better and better and better. Um, but um, yeah. The question I would ask is, did your group to get together to play D&D or did your group get together to get together? Mm-hmm. If your group Great got question. together and D&D was the excuse to get together, then you might want to realize that. And it might be easier just to have a Zoom call and hang out. Uh, that, that might actually meet the requirements of what you were trying to do. Because mm. if you do want a really solid game, you almost have to do what Ben does. Do you have the fortitude? Do you have the technology <laughs> to do what Ben does? Because that's what you're going to need to do to make sure everybody is heard, everybody is seen, everybody feels like they're a part of the game. I think that, you know, in terms of maintaining a long-form campaign as well, and, and this advice, your my, your mileage will probably vary. But the thing that I've learned, even even in under the best circumstances, 
is to not think of your D&D game as like the special night where we all get together as like the, you know, let's get together for a games night, but just to think of it as part of your routine and that you will show up, you know, hell or high water within reason. And that's the way to maintain that consistency and commitment as opposed to thinking of it as a special occasion. It's just part of your routine. You want to do it every week. It's somewhere where you go every Thursday night or Friday or Tuesday or whatever it is, um, or, you know, whether it's monthly or weekly or bi-weekly um, and just being uh, committed to, to that, um, you know, and not kind of blowing it off because you're like, ah, long day at work or, you know, this or that because you have party, you know, if this person's had a hard day and then the next week this person's had a hard day and then the, you know, uh, that can cause the group to just kind of go defunct over time. Um, again, I mean that all within reason. I don't mean to be like, if you've broken your leg, you drag yourself to that <laughs> game. But uh, I just find that having that firm level of commitment hmm. is and what it, is required to get it to, to be regular. Yeah, and I think that ties in a lot with what Sean was saying as well, is that sometimes you need to uh, confirm that the whole group is on the same page about that. Is yeah. the whole group mm-hmm. on board for it to be like, this is D&D night. It's about playing D&D. It's part of the schedule. Commit to it. Or is one of your players just like, oh, I just wanted to hang out and play games. Um, <laughs> and if I'm not feeling in the mood to hang out and play games, I'm not going to want to play d You know what I mean? There are going to yeah. be, I, I've certainly had groups that uh, a lot of the problems came from not everyone being on the same pages for that. And you can, and I, 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 am, I will always be spouting this is that I, it's fine. During your pre-session zero stuff, when you're organizing who's going to be in a game, I think it is fine to say, hey, this game is going to be like a proper campaign. We're trying to tell a cool story here. Um, Are you up for that or would you be more into a more casual game? Like you can say no to this one and I'll invite you to the next one. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's not not the Met Gala. You don't have to say yes in order to get the invitation (laughs) to the next one. Um, And I I think uh, as much as I love all the the sort of safety tools and things that that get discussed in session zeros now i think that to a certain degree session zero has become about those things and i think that a lot of it needs to just be that same page talk are we all on the same page about xyz because safety tools have become this you know friction point within the community it's what gets focused on heavily but yeah there, there's much more that goes into a session zero check out our video on session zeros it's from like two years ago um <laughs> How wild is that? We've been doing this for so long. I know it has. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It's been two years. It's been over two years. October was our like two year anniversary. October was our two year anniversary. Yeah. I think like 1st of October, 2021 was our first episode. So there you go. We've been doing it for a while. I was 25 when we started. (laughs) (laughs) Michael did write into Ghostfire Gaming, a podcast at ghostfiregaming.com to ask, why no dragons in Grim Hollow? Um, uh, do they, do they follow the standard dragon rules of metallic equal good, chromatic equal evil? How can they, if um, they don't exist? Checkmate. Good question. Checkmate. Ooh, you've got me there. Sean Merwin, do dragons exist in Grim Hollow? To a point, they do. Depends on your definition of a dragon. If you're talking about a dragon as a sort of species slash subspecies, yes, there are dragons. They are generally very small. We might call them drakes. Um, there are some very, very, very old undead dragons that existed back when dragons did exist in Etheris. Uh, but now they are not alive anymore and doing horrible things or horrible things have been done to them. Uh, so the, the quick answer is there aren't dragons in the sense of we think of them in the normal fantasy setting, uh, but they do have a history of, uh, in, in uh, Etheris. And they may have a history that's hidden right now that we will see more of later. But I also want James to say what he was going to say. Sean, is it possible that one might even find one of these powerful undead dragons in a lair of some sort? It is possible that that might happen. Yes. And it is some possible ridiculously that, high level. <laughs> yes. And it is possible that, say, in, uh, in the northern lands of Valica, there is a specific dragon that has been worshipped even over the years and that several of the clans of Valica have ties to that dragon. 
we think about these dragons a lot. We think about these dragons that don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. maybe more than we should even. <laughs> it's almost like it's a, it's always in our heads. It's like it's a job or something. I, I had the exact same question when I joined Ghostfire. I went to Jordan and I said, dragons. Hmm? And he said, no, mm-hmm. uh, we don't, we don't have those. And yeah. it, it goes to the, the setting and what the setting's meant to be. The setting is meant to be grim fairy tales. Uh, it's meant to be sort of the monsters are the people. You don't need dragons breathing fire and raining hell down upon the people of the village when the local lord is that villain um, mm-hmm. and is just as deadly just more methodical about their death dealing and you know more uh what's legalistic uh, about it right <laughs> they're they're uh they're doing it in in ways that people might just say yeah it seems like a good guy uh, yeah, they might not kill you but that make you wish you were dead exactly um the uh, dark fantasy Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the Blightscale Dragon, which is kind of the, the one that's featured in Lairs of Etherus and the Monster Grimoire, and just the idea of this dragon that is not proud, you know, its body is falling apart on it, it's losing scales and skin, it's, it's crawled into a lair, it doesn't have a horde anymore, it just wants to, like, almost like it, it, it's shamed, you know, it was once this beautiful regal thing and then it's crawled into a space to just try and shut itself out from the world, you know, um, and and it almost has to be like pried out of its lair or something like that. It's just spiteful and hateful uh, towards the world, which, um, you know, is very, uh, th- there's something evocative about the Blightscale Dragon that I, I really love. I t- just quickly answer the second part of um, the question in terms of uh, metallic versus chromatic. The, I bemoaned this last week on the Lawcast. Like the the what what draconic creatures exist in Grim Hollow certainly don't uh, align to that chromatic metallic kind of lore of um, the Forgotten Realms, and it does frustrate me a little bit with how the Forgotten Realms dragon lore has become so ubiquitous about dragons, kind of throughout fantasy. Um, because whenever I was playing in my homebrew before I was playing in Grim Hollow, I would describe a dragon, and the first question players would ask was, "What color is it?" Uh, to try and gauge what their reaction to it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just find dragons more mystical when they don't have these like clear definitions of, you know, I dragons agree behave this way. so hard. Well, to be fair, yeah. this isn't a Forgotten Realms problem. This is a like first edition D&D problem, yeah. sure, right? It's sure. Dragonlance has it, all that stuff. What color was the dragon that St. George slew? I, I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I should know this answer, but I don't. My brain says red, green, maybe. I don't know anymore. I think it's usually green in art. Fire-breathing green dragon. Chew on that one, D&D people. The only dragons from mythology that I can think of where the color mattered were, of course, the white and red dragons who were fighting uh, beneath the castle foundations in mm-hmm. uh, Arthurian mythology. Um, oh. And that legend, the colors are important because it represents... The Welsh and the the Bretons, basically, um, and and so there's a symbolic element there, but it doesn't tell you about the dragon's physiology or, or personality or anything like that. Um, so I don't feel beholden to color means X, because um, yeah, no, I agree. When I when I make dragons in my game, I'm like I, I give them names like I don't know the the dragon of the desert skies, and it's like. Is it blue? Yeah, it's blue. It's opalescent. It's got, you know, glimmering star-like uh, mm. patches. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 not about that for me. Um, yeah. I agree. I agree completely. I um, Many years ago when I was a teacher, I saw um, – I was just asked to put on a movie for the class. I was a substitute teacher. And they were watching Spirited Away. And I got so inspired by Haku and and how beautiful that, – like, that animation is so mm. incredible – that I became determined to find a Japanese dragon miniature um, that I could use to represent. And I found a fantastic one actually in the Malifaux range. I don't know if it's still print being printed or not, but I painted it blue and everybody assumed it was a blue dragon. I was like, this is not a blue dragon. This is a wind dragon. This is, an, this is a dragon of the sky. You know, this is a, an elemental mm. dragon 
as opposed to like a, a signed by its color. Because uh, isn't that interesting as well? We've lost this kind of association of um, uh, certainly Eastern dragons broadly, you know, often represent uh, a river or, you know, there's a natural, sure. there's a there's a, a connection to the natural world. It is the spirit of this place um, or, or, you know, metaphorical dragons like I'm talking about the Welsh dragon, right? Like I feel like in in pursuing this uh, this sort of D&D-esque uh, chromatic dragon concept, we are losing dragons as a metaphor and I think metaphors are powerful. Even Tiamat, sorry, go on. <laughs> well, th- there's there's a phrase in D and D. I don't know scholarship. I guess Gygaxian naturalism, and it's this this instinct to mm-hmm. you know in Dragon Magazine write about monster ecologies. Right, these are beings within an ecosystem, and a, a lot of people love it. And I think also there's a lot of good reason to say that it does a disservice to your fiction by literalizing the metaphorical. Um, it's funny. I talk about this layer that I made at the beginning of the episode that literalizes the metaphorical. And I, I say it's such a great thing. It, it's, it's, it's a neutral thing. It's, it's a, it's a stylistic, it's a tonal thing. Um, and that's what I really like about Grim Hollow's dragons, right? Is that everything about Grim Hollow is that it is in a, it's a world in a state of decay, right? There are, there are things that were once enormous and magical and not necessarily good, but wondrous and the world is blighted now compared to them the gods are dead civilizations have crumbled and those things that still remain wondrous are opulent and decadent and evil right Mm -hmm. uh the the vampires of astoya maintain their their splendor but it is a deeply evil thing um and I love how the the dragons, which now no longer really exist except in this decrepit, uh, undead form, uh, those dragons which are left, the drakes, are these you know these crawling sort of animalistic things, uh, and we get the naturalism there, but it, it has a broader symbolic meaning within the context of the setting. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you can't bring a dragon into the setting for your home games because mm-hmm. that would be something that. You've told the players forever there are no dragons that you are familiar with. Oh, you hit 13th level, guess what? This town just said that a dragon attacked. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, Then that, it becomes that, something more. That, that was something huge I tried to build up in my, my home campaign was this idea that um, the, the only dragon that exists, I tell them this constantly, the only dragon that exists is Belagorn the Golden who guards, is the personal bodyguard of the emperor, you know, and that's why there's an empire is because no kingdom has ever been able to split apart from the empire because the emperor has a personal bodyguard that's lived for thousands of years or hundreds of years that is like a nuclear missile on the on the battlefield, you know. It just absolutely destroys conventional armies. Entire battles were won without a single casualty because Belagorn just landed, you know, and everybody was like, okay, you win. We're part of the empire now. Where do we sign up? Um, mm-hmm. And then... You start a camp, you know, and that's just in the background. That's part of the background law. That's got nothing to do with what they're doing, but but that st- fact, you know, naturally just comes up every now and again. And then you say a dragon is attacking, and this instantly becomes a a cataclysm, you know, with massive implications because, uh, uh, you know, if there is a second one of these creatures then the power shifts within the empire entirely. And the, just the other point that I want to quickly come to is that, and this was advice I got from uh, WebDM, from uh, Jim Davis, I think, said this, was that, you know, if you want to make, if you want to stick with the metallic chromatic kind of thing, but you want to give them more mysticism, Belagorn isn't a golden dragon. Belagorn is the golden dragon. And there is a red dragon and there is a blue, dra- you know, but they are singular there is no reason for the color that they have. There's a, there's it's not a tied word to for this, I think, um, that I like to use because I, I talk about, I don't like to have Medusas. I like to have, this is Medusa. This is the singular one. I think the word is something like on Shalen. Um, right. That it means like this is this is like a, a singular thing. Yeah. Um, and I love that. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do when you say the red dragon. That yeah. makes such a massive difference to the tone of what that Absolutely. means. Um, oh, I just, I just really like it because it feels like it feels like the opposite of the sort of taxonomical, right? It feels like 
the the way that chromatic dragons have become the standard in D&D feels like it is taxonomy if taxonomy worked because in the real world it doesn't honestly we keep trying (laughs) but you know you look at paleontology as one of my favorite examples is like oh yes the brontosaurus and then we found another brontosaurus but we're like wait the bones are different that's actually an apatosaurus um it's a different thing and then they looked into it later and they're like actually we were wrong it is the same thing it's just an infant and it's just like we're just making it up we're making it all up um whereas uh, these colored dragons, it's like, what if that was just true? What if, yeah, what if yeah. this one factor of this creature told us everything about it and there was no room for gray areas? It was just true. Um, I mean, I want to speak of the one uh, time where I think that, uh, you know, taxonomy, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be using this word correctly, but that kind of like categorization of monster works really well. Yes, it's predictable, but Sean brought it up first this episode, so I don't care. The Witcher. Oh, um, the Witcher. Because I think I think that it works in the Witcher world specifically because, and this is the way that this was described, I think, on a podcast I was listening to years ago, a video game podcast, saying Witchers aren't, like, they're, they're kind of worry amongst, they're kind of super soldiers within the setting, but they're not super powered necessarily. You know, they're mutants. But what they really are are plumbers in a world <laughs> where nobody else understands pipes whatsoever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and so monsters are relatively mundane to them, but to everyone else, they're these completely alien, mystical things. And someone will be like, the dead bodies in the in the graveyard started rising. And a knight will be like, they're not dead bodies, you fool, they're ghouls. And a witcher will be like, well, actually, they're al ghouls because they have, you know, these specific traits which make them dangerous in a different way. You're not going to be able to defeat them with that sword. I'm going to need to use this, you know, and... That's kind of the power fantasy of, of being a monster hunter is that you know the differences and ways to exploit the weaknesses of certain monsters, but there's still a mysticism to it because mm-hmm. there's still mystery to everybody else. And the way that I like to describe it is like back in ye olden times when we used to diagnose, you know, mental maladies and uh, illnesses and strange happenings as like, oh, there's a dragon over there or they've been cursed by pixies or this person is being haunted the fun of the witcher world or the monster hunting world is no they're being like they've been cursed by pixies and you got to go deal with that you know or they're being haunted by a ghost and you got to go deal with that and there's a mystery to unfold there and as you get more information you're able to tackle the problem in the specific it could be pixies or it could be a haunting or it could be something entirely different you've got to figure it out first using your expertise and then diagnose the problem and then solve it. Well, this is so interesting because I was going to say a very similar thing, but what you've just said reminds me of, I was just having a conversation with a doctor friend of mine where um, who we're talking about is, is medicine an art or a science? And I was saying there has right. to be a different thing. And he said, well, actually, um, I think he said Plato called it dialectic because it's more like you're in conversation with what's going on, right? You've got the symptoms. It's like, okay, here's a bunch of symptoms. It could be any one of these things. So we have to try this and see how it responds. And then we'll reply and then it'll reply. You know what I mean? And I just find that so interesting and so, so it it, it feels right. And it feels so applicable to this, right? Because what you're saying is exactly, I was going to say, it feels like, um, alchemy where it's like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of science. It's based in science principles, but it's also, it's that unfolding mystery of, okay, we got to see what reacts with what we got to keep responding with that back and forth. It feels like a materia medica, this sort of hedge witch style of medicine where it's like, yeah, we've noticed these plants tend to have this effect. Let's see what we can make out of that. Um, and that I I love. That's so great for storytelling as well. It's played for a gag in the TV show, but in the Witcher, when, when he's fighting the Striga and it comes down the stairs and he wraps a chain around it and then it breaks out of the chain and he's like, oh, Forgive me, my lord. This happens all the time. He tried a solution. It didn't quite work. And the stakes have risen. And the player, uh, you know, I love when players guess what the monster is and they're wrong because it gives you the opportunity or or they've just got a detail wrong. Or, you know, recently I had a a, a creature called the Gravekeeper who uh, the the players were told they have to slay the Gravekeeper um, because it's this, this source of terror within the town and it's a symbol of the Crimson Court's power and... Uh, you must destroy it. And the party were like, all right, we'll lure it because it it steals bodies, takes them to the graveyard and buries them. That's why it's called the Gravekeeper because it keeps the grave. So they're like, all right, let's get a body. Or let's ca- I think they ended up casting um, the the spell. I can't think of the name of it, but it makes you appear dead to all uh, death. intents and purposes. Fain death. Yeah. So they cast that on one of themselves to lure it into a house. And they did that. And then they beat it to death in what was a pretty epic fight. And then I was like, and it crumbles to ashes and disappears. 
What they didn't know, because they didn't investigate, was that the gravekeeper's power is tied to the grave itself and like a lich, it reforms every time it's killed. They have to go to the graveyard to be able to unbind the curse that has created this creature. But when I dis- one of them, it has a fear effect that one of them failed against, so it kind of became the narrative that he's having a panic attack during the initial fight and so it was his character who spotted the gravekeeper again for the first time when it was revealed it wasn't slain and he went back in he failed the check again went back into that like you know almost shell shock state of going back to the point where he was on his own the other players were like is he imagining this or is this real and i'm like uh, well i tasty, guess until tasty somebody else sees storytelling. it um, so yeah it's like raising mistakes moments. I want to I want to dig into the play element of this because mm-hmm. I think there is a reason why a lot of D&D monsters have become so rigid uh and the the game itself treats them fairly rigidly and predictably and it's because over its now nearly 50 year history people know what the iconic D&D monsters are they know the trolls are weak to fire and acid they yes. know this yes. stuff and it becomes a a point of friction between the knowledge of the players and the knowledge of their characters of how to deal with these creatures that are so iconic to people within the hobby. Um, which, interestingly enough, is why books like Monster Grimoire and is like Cobalt Press's Tome of Beasts and stuff like that are so popular because they break the mold. Um, mm. And so to change it up is a very difficult little thing to do you can make new monsters and kind of hope they become iconic but you know the 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 iconoclasticness of them is there for a reason right they're they're memorable they have some sort of heritage to them and so if you change any of that if you make and this gold dragon is evil uh there's people who are going to get mad at it right uh, this troll is weak to radiant damage not acid and it's like people are going to feel like you're trying to trick them you're trying to give one over on them that's sure. you're trying to provide a legitimate challenge but like you're you're playing with their expectations in a way that feels like a gimmick well i i do think it's interesting though because i think that what you're saying is true but I think it's true for Wizards of the Coast who are publishing. Because we've talked about before, they're the lingua franca of this this hobby, right? Yeah. But we, it's like poetry again. It's Poetry is is taking these, these expectations of language and how it works and changing it in certain places uh, or choosing where you follow it, where you go against it. And it has such an impact with genre, right? Genre, you you have the horizon of expectations within a certain genre. And if you shift it slightly, it has a massive impact. And so I always advocate for choosing where you're going to go against those things. Because if you do it all the time, it just becomes a mess of things to remember. If you do it just once, Hmm. then it has an impact. I'm not sure I I totally agree with that. (gasps) I I think you're right. Wizards of the Coast has a brand to care about. That's, That's absolutely true. True. But as a DM... If you're going to change something for the sake of surprising your players, I have seen players get upset that that you are trying to pull one over on them, that you're being unfair, that you've changed the rules of the game in a way that is, you know, that, that breaks the social contract of playing D&D where puzzles have solutions. I agree, except in that I think... Um, I think that that has an expectation of what kind of a puzzle it is, right? Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, a riddle has an answer, but is this a riddle or is this um, something that, like Ben was suggesting, you have to put in some some legwork, you have to investigate mm. some things first. You know, if you're if you just assume this troll is going to be weak to fire, and you go in with your your meta knowledge of what trolls are, and you don't put in any effort into buying into that story and investigating the you know these troll attacks then maybe that one's on you <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. you would have found my little hints that actually this troll is weak to and know, and it, it comes down to then knowing your players and knowing yeah. knowing what they expect and what they want uh, there's the old saying right write what you know if you're writing a story and that's horrible advice uh, because if you write what you know you never learn anything so Right from what you know to what you don't know, right oh. towards something where you're learning. And if you have mm. players that are like that, you're fine. And if you don't have players like that, there are still ways to do that. What you do is you drop clues. Oh, the trolls attacked. They raided the village and they ran. There are burn marks everywhere, but there are no troll bodies. 
Sure. Hopefully, if players are paying attention, they will then say, hmm, let's make some checks. Let's do some research. If they ignore it completely and they just rush off with their torches to the troll cave and suddenly the fire is not stopping the regeneration of the trolls, that's on them, right? Yeah. That's on them because you've done your job as the game master. You gave mm. them the clue they needed. Uh, as long as you spoke clearly and were making eye contact with someone yeah. while you said it, <laughs> then they so should. You didn't whisper it behind your hand. Right. They should be. <laughs> they should be picking up on those things. Uh, yeah. And I also, I also think, I mean, like, like James said, if you're doing it just for a reason, like, it, just for no reason, if you're just doing it to surprise your players, then that's going to be a problem. But if you're if you're dropping these hints and and they just don't realize that actually this was to let the, you know that the trolls were the henchmen of this evil wizard who's been giving them resistance to fight, you know, whatever thing. If if you fold it in for a purpose, then I think that it can be really, really fun. Mm. Sure. I mean, I, I, I always love them juicy, juicy monster hunter, uh, you know, clues, uh, as I call them. Which You is, built you a know, whole subclass around it. I, I built a whole class, around, class around, around it. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Monster Hunter, still currently in playtest. Check out our YouTube channel and our blog, um, uh, <laughs> which we have plans for in the future, uh, definitely. I think the other way that you can um, uh, adjust this is at the point where your players, because I have this with Silver a lot, whenever I mention there might be a werewolf or a vampire or an undead creature of any capacity, players are like, oh, Silver. And I'm really not a huge fan of one problem finishes everything you know i've been playing with this idea of like blessed weapons what if you had to go to the church or maybe the cleric in the party can can bless a weapon and it becomes sacred and therefore capable of the harming undead creatures yeah. but if you if you kill a humanoid with it or you hit a humanoid with it it loses its blessing and needs to be blessed again so you have nice. to you have different tools for different jobs much like a witcher has two different swords for two different purposes um, or like a golfer has many different irons <laughs> for different kinds of hitting the ball, indeed. I guess. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you see literally in the TV show, uh, Geralt carries his swords around, not on his back, but in this big case that almost looks like a golf carton, uh, if that's the word, a golf wagon thing on. Sean, what's the word for a golf thing? A uh, golf bag? <laughs> a golf cart? Oh, yeah, there we go. Golf cart. There we go. Um, yeah. uh, he carries them, you know, his swords in, in one of them instead. Um, but when my players instantly go, when they say out loud to each other, oh, there's undead, we should get some silver. There's there's werewolves, we should get some silver. There's trolls. All right, I'm going to go get some alchemist fire. Then I will instantly uh, ask them to make an, in, uh, an investigation check, maybe a history check, some sort of check that allows them to know in character whether this instinct is correct or not, you know? And obviously if they roll a three and I'm like, oh, you think fire will work? They'll all go, maybe we maybe we double check the fire thing. And it would um, be great if a monster book had those checks for you right in the monster descriptions, telling you exactly what you need to know. I mean, those are uh, in the, the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire. And if you just want a what taster you don't of, say. If you want a taster of 75 plus monsters from that Grimoire, you can also get all that lore from Lairs of Etheris available now on D&D Beyond. We've been killing it with the tie-ins today. Good oh, yeah. on the yeah, back, yeah. everyone. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I kind of cultivated these questions. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Ghostfire Publishing things, our Enchanting Emporium's Kickstarter is also currently live. I have no idea what we've reached because we're recording this a week in advance, but if you have backed it so far, uh, thank you so much. We've got some amazing contributors on it, including the Dungeon Dudes, um, who we've mentioned already this episode are contributing a, uh, merchant, Aldor the Immense, uh, who's already been unlocked. That was a stretch goal. So is Jacob Buds from XP to level three. Um, Sir Nominus from the Quest of Nomicon is going to show up as a merchant. Um, uh, that has been unlocked. At time of recording, uh, we still have a merchant locked, which is uh, uh, from Crooked Moon from Legend of Aventris. The Vagrant, um, uh, a wandering or a traveling trader. Uh, so if that hasn't been unlocked yet, go back to Kickstarter, unlock it. Other great contributors on there. Notice the Vagrant, not a Vagrant <laughs> on Shaylin. <laughs> there are no other Vagrants. Um, uh, and of course, Blackbird, there's great tra traveling trader Blackbird from James Hake, uh, or if you want more Grim Hollow clues and mysteries to unlock, 
uh, Professor Terence Myron von Kufen, uh, the exiled professor, uh, which I wrote, is also included in there. James, do you want to add anything else to that? I feel like I'm stealing everybody else's thunder this week. No, you're doing great, Ben. Uh, Enchanting Emporiums. It is, a, like I said last week, it's fun for the whole family. It's fun for your GMs who want NPCs and plot hooks and locations to hang your adventures around. It's great for players who want to get those magic items and who want to delve into the, the secrets of magic in their world. And it is just, it is just, it's just a perfect book. It, it's got no flaws. It is the number one RPG book in all the realms. You should add, <laughs> like get it for every person you know, even the people who don't play D anD. d Yes. Uh, perfect. We will be back next week. We are streaming again next week uh, at uh, ten a.m. Tuesday, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Started with the Tuesdays uh, with the with the Australians this time, uh, but that will be six p.m. Monday. Uh, uh, Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Monday uh, Standard Time, uh, where you can catch us live. If you want to come hang out in the chat, you can ask us questions. If you want to, I've never said this before, but it it really is true. If you, because people have asked us this from time to time, if you do want to support this podcast, honestly, supporting anything that Ghostfire is doing does that. If you want to check out Lairs on D&D Beyond, or if you want to go check out Enchanting Emporiums, it really does help support this podcast, Um, uh, especially if you click through the links down below. But otherwise, you don't have to. You can also like, subscribe, just tell a friend, um, get your mum to listen to it, um, uh, get all your school friends in on the Lawcast, uh, go to you work and talk about the Lawcast. You mispronounced Sumash. Sumash, that like uh, button. Sorry, my bad. Um, or leave a comment. Th- those are good too. I always waffle at this bit anyway. <laughs> My name's been Ben Byrne, here with Sean Moo and James Hake, Dale Kingsmill. Les Vetheris is on D&D Beyond. I can't state it enough. And we will catch you all next week for another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Ba-da-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da-da. I'm sure I used to try to make it sound like the actual music. <laughs> no yeah, longer. No longer. No, we gave up. Um, We've uh, evolved also, to a higher state. Uh, exactly. Dale, you are absolutely 100% doing the intro for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh.